<laughs> How are we supposed to live as Christians? What are our lives supposed to look like? How does our how does this gospel that he's so eager to talk about that, that he's not ashamed of um, that how does it affect the way we think about God or act towards God or, or our sisters and brothers in Christ or our neighbors? Parents, how does it affect the way we rear our children? Children, how does it affect the way we love and honor our parents, siblings? How does it help you love your brother or sister? When the Spirit of God infuses a community, what will the fruit branch out into? How will it make it into our calendars and our bank accounts and our screen times and our dinner tables and our ballots? These are the questions of Romans 12 and following. Well, not the screen times and the voting booths and the bank accounts were very different back then, but you get what I mean. How will we live in this world? And my, I hazard a guess that, that, frankly, many of us are either refusing or too busy to even ask these questions. Because if you stay on default, every culture in the world has an answer for these questions. And if you don't think about it or challenge it, you just accept it. Because the answers are already there for us. We are hoping for a decent income, some good relationships, a family that doesn't cause us too much pain, and some good times before we die in our sleep. So we often just live in this world acting out or leaning into those very categories. The flip side, though, is that we ask these questions about how now we will live in light of who Jesus is, and we only experience it as pressure and stress. My house, my body, my bank account, my kids don't look like theirs, so I must be messing this thing up. I must not be doing it right. And so we either avoid or we get totally burdened by the question. And yet to be sure not to add more burden, all sorts of people who do not believe or not even interested in Jesus or God look at us and are asking this question, how will these Christians live in light of what they proclaim? In the first two verses, the opening remarks of the rest of the book, Paul gives us a pattern of faith and faithfulness, a pattern for living under the reign of Christ, the gospel of, for the grind of life. And you see it start to develop in the end of verse 2. Everything in these two verses land right here. That by, the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're talking about the will of God for a second. So his will. See, another way of asking this same set of questions from before is, what does God want for us? The word here is much like ours in terms of will. It can be either something um, between determined resolve or an expressed desire. What is, what is the resolve of God or the expressed desire of God for us? But you get more to the point when you get those three words by, that, 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 um, that modify it. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Good is good. Acceptable has this hint of, of, of Old Testament um, sacrifices. Acceptable is like pleasing to God. And the word is perfect here too. Now, the word perfect here 
Wait, I just said word perfect. That's weird. Um, the perfect here is a word that really kind of more means the end. It's the same word as the end. It's like the completion, the maturing, the, the whole, um, the, the matured or fulfilled. So it's less to do with not having a flaw. In our day and age of perfectionism, I want to make that distinction for you guys. So what's the end game in this passage to discern that which is, or what, what God finds good and pleasing and complete? Not what we find good and pleasing and complete, but what he does. So that's where he ends. See where he begins. He begins to say, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, dot, dot, dot. And so we move in the beginning with his mercies. Everything is born of his mercies. Let me give you a little um, uh, biblical interpretation hack for you. Whenever you see the word therefore, your job is to read what was before, right? What was before? This mind-boggling interruption of prayer and praise where he is so overwhelmed by God's work in the world that he just starts singing. It's a worship break. Undone with the power and the kindness and the severity and difficulty of understanding God. But this therefore carries with it, because of the structure of the book of Romans, all 11 chapters that are beforehand, which has been thick in theology, and now moves after this therefore transition into kind of more practical living. How will we this work out in our community? First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's, it's, it's about, this, before this therefore, it's about God's grace that abounds to those who've, who've rebelled against the creator's intent, right? Against his will, his good and pleasing and complete ways in the world. And Paul assumes that I and you in our heart of hearts know that we not only fall short, we even fight against God's ways. And if we're kind of courageous enough to admit it or, 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 or been given the gift of self-knowledge enough to admit it, we know that we are nowhere near where we would want to be. And that shame is real and that regret is acute. And yet what Paul says over and over is, is that the gospel is stronger than that. Jesus has come to bring a reign of grace and life over and against a reign of sin and death. And with his bringing of this reign comes with it, as we, as we come to him with humility and repentance and, and a bended knee, what comes in its wake are the very mercies, plural, of God. Forgiveness, restored relationship, freedom from the consequences of our rebellion, and freedom from the power that sin has over us. The double cure against sin, cleansed from its guilt and its power. Friends, the end is his will, but it always begins. And there's no other way to do Christianity than by his mercies. There is no other way. Everything else is a non-starter. We always begin here. We actually begin in and here. Friends, whether you are up all night working at the shelter and trying to serve Jesus, or you are up all night partying like a wayward rock star, whether you are coming in today barely hanging on or still hung over, 
whether you slept in heavenly peace or in a place you shouldn't have last night, whether you started with family devotions this morning with incredible tenderness towards one another, or you tried to stop yelling at each other as you entered the church parking lot. You, you gotta, <laughs> there is only one place to start, and that is by his mercies. We don't clean ourselves up. We show up empty-handed because we live by his mercies, not the track record of our good deeds. This is what Paul is getting at and where we start. And, 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 and there's no other source for moving forward to understanding or being in the will of God other than by his mercies. And then he says, it's from this space of his mercies that you now present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual worship or our reasonable worship. Our bodies. Paul is appealing to us as Christians to lay down our lives. In light of Jesus' sacrifice, he's calling us to sacrifice our own bodies for the kingdom of God. Here, Paul, Paul uses incredibly vivid, even shocking language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That we lay it on the altar as a sacrifice in the temple. Except for the big difference between this and the, and the temple sacrifices is that, yes, we're all going to die on that altar, but, but in our dying, we actually have new life. And that is a generative force that brings us into activity in the world. We come alive and it bursts forth in unexpected ways. And so that's what that holiness is a part. Is that, that the holiness and the pleasing part is the, the part that's set apart for God's work in the world. But I want to make sure you guys get the order of things here because it's different than what you might expect. We've been told, both culturally and in the church, that education is the key. It is the center of virtue. Knowledge is king. So much of even Christian teaching is about having the right theology, the right thinking, the right worldview, the right insights. And those are important things. But the priority for Paul here, beyond living by his mercies, is not the mind, but the body. We talk about renewing our minds, and we'll do that. And it is essential, but it is not first. There's a primacy of the mind, and this is con con uh, regularly taught in scriptures, to be doers of the word and not just hearers. You see, the Bible assumes you need to be present in your body to inhabit spaces where virtue must be lived out. That the physical bodily presence matters. You can't renew your mind without being in the place where virtue is required. Physically. Sacrificing your body for the Bible is the first step of sanctification. And it makes complete sense. Y'all, the Bible is like immensely practical. There are two scenarios in which, or there are two pieces of advice. When burning with sexual desire, the Bible gives you two options. Either get married or flee. The solution is in the body. Flee is not a metaphor. He doesn't say, think fleeing thoughts. He says, remove your body from the situation. Flee. Or... Put your body in this situation by getting married and resolving the tension there. 
It says move your body either way. I have a friend who's, um, who's, who kept the door open when he used to drop his fiance off. And he would say, look, I love this woman way too much to make a split, that split second decision whether or not I'm going in or not. Now that not by your thing, that's okay. The thing here is do not decouple your body from your life in God. I don't do this very often. I don't even remember when I have, but I'd, I'd ask you to go back and listen to my sermon from Romans 6, 12 through 14. It's sometime in April. And it's about the, way, the, the reign of sin that operates in our bodies and how Jesus redeems our bodies. And you know this, that the primacy of our bodies is for real. It's why violations and violence against our bodies are so devastating. It's why trauma is stored in our bodies. It's why sins that include our bodies, whether done to us or done by us, are so devastating to our whole person. Because our bodies matter that much. Christianity is fundamentally a physical religion. And it is so thoroughly physical that the very first Christian heresy was called Gnosticism. It was a devaluing of our bodies. It's why Jesus came in body. And he died in body. And he was risen in body. Because our bodies need to be redeemed. Let me show you a part of someone's body. Right here, a little picture. It's a picture of a woman who's given her life to service of the poor. For the marginalized, the dying, and the lowest caste of her, life, of her, of her country. When the shoes would come in for both people in need and the servants, she would wait for the last ones and she'd cram her feet into them, literally sacrificing her body for the sake of her neighbors to the place of the deformation or the deforming of her feet. Those are Mother Teresa's feet. Our bodies are sacrificially lived in for the sake of our neighbors. Okay, Presbyterians, you can exhale now because we have to get to talk about the mind now. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, whew, enough of this body stuff. Pretty soon we're talking about the spirit and we're going to have to, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds. Now, it means a bit more than knowledge, or certainly than intellect, but it's not really less than that. It's more of the life of mind or orientation and curiosity about the world, the courage to think through things, even in nuance, to work through viewpoints. But it's not about being smart. It's about being wise and humble and reliant upon God's word. And it is a reprogramming, a denial of a way of thinking, and a reprogramming of the mind away from the age and toward the mind of Christ. Now, this is great because it means that you don't have to check your brain out at the door when coming to Christ. It keeps us also from being brains on a stick. But it also, the renewal of our mind keeps us from being sleepwalkers. But in particular, Paul seems to associate this mind with two strategies. Nonconformity, do not conform, and transformation, but be transformed. You would say resistance toward the age and renovation of the mind. Resistance to the age, the, the word world here is really age. I'm not sure why it's translated word, world. I'm, it's not that big of a difference. But, but don't be conformed to the unreasonable infrastructure of this age. The age of sin and death without God. 
but be transformed by Jesus' vision of the world and experience of the world that he's recreating. He really is saying something like, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Appreciate that. The Sermon on the Mount talks about redemptive suffering, blessed peacemakers, and the mores of kindness and love. And that's over and against and a resistance against the ways of the world. So let's, let's go through some examples of, of, of what might be resistance and renewal. And I'll start with the one I think is the, the kind of most significant for us. And, and I, hopefully that leads to the other ones as well. But of the infrastructured thoughts of the world, the tenets of this age, isn't supremacy of the self one of the main things? That we are all that matters. Our happiness our fulfillment, our emotions, our rights. Resist the spirit of the age that says we create our own reality for ourselves and that no one can tell you what to do. Do not conform to that. Renew your mind on what Jesus tells us to, that, that, that we to lay down our lives and that it's better to serve than to be served and to take up your cross and bear it. We renovate our minds to what the value system of the king and his kingdom is, and not of this age or this world. But the supremacy of the self leads to um, what can only be uh, its cousin, this kind of radical individualism. You don't need anybody. You've got this on your own. That you're weak if you ask for help. Their, your emotions are yours, your life is yours, and you have to deal with it. It's up to you. Don't be fooled because there are some of these tenets that, 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 that come wrapped in church clothing as planting strategies or worship conferences or discipleship initiatives. Don't be foolish here. There's still folly. Resist the spirit of this age. Do not conform to it. Renew your mind on Jesus' words to carry each other's burdens or not give up meeting together. Jesus' words to love our neighbor as ourselves or to count others better than ourselves? To me, the, the, the supremacy of the self and this, this, um, this radical individualism lead us to this place of fear and insecurity. And, 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 and our, our, uh, our, just think about it. Our age really, truly believes that all there is is what is here. And we are tempted in those same ways. That we need more stuff and more money to feel valuable or successful. It is killing us and our neighbors. And it does not deliver on its promises. But we need each other to deliver us up from the spirit of this age. Resist with each other. Do not be conformed to more stuff materialism. Materialism is a cruel God. But we want to be transformed by Jesus and renew our mind on the birds of the air, the flowers of the fields. Renew our minds that it is better to lose your life than gain the whole world and lose your soul. And we need to do that together. Think about this. Do you really imagine on your deathbed that you wish you had a nicer car? But we think about it all the time. Treasure the eternal. It's going to last longer. But we need each other to do that. These are all commands given to the plural, to us as a community. Not just sit around by yourself and think it out. 
And this fear and insecurity, you know where it leads. It leads to violence and self-protection. From tweets to actual weapons, our age is all about protecting the self. Whether it's physical or verbal violence against anything that would threaten us. As Wilcox says, no, I know that compassion is out of, all out of fashion and anger is all the rage. Resist the spirit of this age, but practice nonconformity by being transformed by kindness, gentleness, patience, love. Meditating in the renewal of your mind on Jesus' words, it says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. That, is take, that takes nonconformity. That takes a trust, a renewal of the mind. We need to be reprogrammed for that kind of life. And to rely on the Spirit for it. I mean, Paul says every once in a while in a couple of letters, he'll say, whatever's true or honorable or just or pure or lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, not a really crazy command, think on those things. Which leads me to this most intriguing part of this passage. If we've had his mercies in our bodies and his will in our minds, there's this part in here that by the testing, that by testing you may discern, discern what's the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. What's this testing about? That phrase, by testing that you may discern, is actually uh, one word. Um, so it's by his mercies that we sacrifice our bodies and renew our minds. But in his testing here, there is a a kind of fundamental level of grace in the process. There is an assumption that you and I are not going to get it right. The story here is a cyclical process. Discerning God's will happens through repetition. And you know what this means, y'all, for a guy who's grown up a perfectionist? It's the glorious revelation that you're not getting it right in the first 50 times. That's some pressure off when the God of the universe who gives you the commands like, yeah, it's going to be trial and error, buddy. It's going to be sanctified winging it. This should be utterly liberating for us because God's will must be learned. It's a process. We grow in grace and ability to obey and grasp God's good, pleasing, and complete or perfect will. It does not lessen the importance of obedience or the weight of our lives or decisions. Please hear me say that. It just means that just like grace starts this whole thing out by his mercies, grace accompanies you along the entire way. Grace that forgives us when we fail and fuels us to try again. God is not assuming our perfection when he shows us his own. That, my friends, is good news. And even more than good news, it is a good, good, good father. So what I want to do is take a test drive on these verses. 
Because in the spirit of Romans 12, which is in the following, all the way through 16, basically, it's very application, practical, or practically oriented. So we're going to go through an exercise here. Can we all agree that Jesus wants us to love our enemies? We might not like it, but we can all agree that that's the case. Right, right, okay. And that that is his good, pleasing, and perfect will, complete will. And can we all agree that it doesn't happen naturally for us? Okay, good, okay, good. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 30 seconds and think of one of the most difficult people or type of person for you. Like literally, just take some time. Okay, hold that person there. Now think about another person, a person or type of person that you don't even really ever think about. In fact, you have so little love for them, they won't even cross your mind on a normal basis. You don't care much for them either, but it's because you don't even think about them. You got that person? Now I want you to pick one and use the other one for homework. Unless one of these people has been your abuser, and I'm dead serious about this, that is a different type of um, approach that the scripture gives us than what I'm doing here. Okay? So pick the one, and let's go through the steps. Step one, by his mercy. Okay, figure out what annoys you about this person. Is it their self-righteousness, their total lack of self-awareness? Is it their, their anger and rage? Is it their greed? What is it? Hold that there. Now bring up your deepest regrets. And as you do, think of the way that you've been able to soak in God's mercy and forgiveness that you've experienced over those regrets. And, and I mean this. In the name of Jesus, if you have not been able to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus for those deep regrets, come, please talk to somebody who looks like they might know what's going on up here. And we would be glad to pour his grace and mercy over you, to remind you, to let you know, maybe for the first time, that it's precisely at the part of those regrets where he will show you his love. We only live by his mercies. And now think about those regrets being covered and that Jesus loved rescuing you from your folly and your failure. And now pray a connection between those dots for more gratitude and hope for this person and you. That the Spirit might tap in, that you might have this mercy and generosity tapped in and overflowing into this space over here. That would spill over to the other. And remember that you have and will fail again, but you live under the reign of Grace, a grace that will actually truly in your heart of hearts wants things to be right, wants love for that person. Just let it sit there and marinate. Step two, give your body to it. Like literally, just put your hands up as open. Not now, but maybe when you go home, this is going to sound really wonky, but maybe you just get on your bed and lie prostrate or on the floor and lie past prostrate and pray for that person as your body is a sacrifice for them, as you lay it out before God. I know that sounds weird. If you have dogs, don't let them in there. They'll lick you. I just was picturing me doing it and my dog's going off, so lock them out of the room. And while you're there, simply pray for that person. 
And for you to never forget that everything is done by his mercy. Then I'll ask you to actually see if you can be with that person or that type of person. Proximity helps a lot. Literally spend time with this type of person. Ask questions, stay curious and hopeful. And pray Jesus gives you more love and more kindness because proximity is also going to like rear the head of your own frustration with that person. You're going to need Jesus a lot more. If you can't see that person, write to that person. Give yourself to love of enemy. Risk your reputation, your bitterness, your anger, your safety. Lay down your body as a living sacrifice or your pen. Then resist and renovate your mind. Trust that it is not a waste of time. Resist efficiency. Resist despair or rage or offense or petty arguments. Do not conform to the age of being right or better or holier than thou. Renew your mind on God's love and the fruit of the Spirit and the hope of the gospel. And step four, just go for it. Keep testing. It's trial and error. It is sanctified winging it. Give it your best shot. Write the letter, but don't send it. Or get the paper out and think about writing the letter. And when you tell God, I don't want to do that right now, put it on your calendar for a month to pray about it again. But don't give up on it. Try and fail. Test and see. God assumes that it will be hard and that the testing must be repeated. If you go and you say something foolish, don't worry about it. You're already bodily sacrificed in this situation anyway. So if you're not woke enough or not proper enough, it'll be okay. Just stay earnest and keep in God's love. You start with his mercies. You live by his mercies. You're under the reign of grace. So enjoy the ride. Because when you get back up on your feet and dust off your failure and your fear and your finiteness, you still have his mercies. When your sin and cruelty and selfishness and lack of love is exposed, you still have his mercies. When you succeed and the ever so slight hint of love and compassion eke out, you still have his mercies. You live by his mercies. The call to your enemy stands. 